This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. All right. Hello, everybody. Sorry, wait, sorry. <laughs> wait, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. All right. No, no, no. I'll worry. Maybe we'll just leave <laughs> that in. I think that was perfect. It's just like the stick in the spokes. I'm like really excited. Finally riding without training wheels and someone just... All right. Perfect. Uh, all right. Hello, everybody. This is uh, EMS 2020. Uh, it's going to be another amazing episode for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's it's EMS 2020. I, I, I feel cocky saying that, but you know what? I feel like I deserve it. Um, that's... <laughs> I know. Uh, and unfortunately, my microphone tips over due to the swelling of my ego, just pushing it clean over. Um, but in addition to uh, this, Chris and Spencer, we have an additional Chris. We have Dr. Chris Seitz is back. Uh, if you have not heard any of the previous episodes with Dr. Chris Seitz in them, uh, they're all amazing. He uh, brings a, a special brand of both humor and knowledge to the show. He also happens to have uh, one of the most amazing test prep programs out there. It's one that I have personally taken uh, and got me through my national registry exam, both my written uh, and it also the knowledge also came in handy during my practical as well. Uh, go ahead and uh, Google Seitz and Sirens. That's S-E-I tz and sirens and you're going to find uh, an amazing website at sightsandsirens.com where all of your ems uh, test prep needs uh, can be met and one of my favorite things about it and i say this like every show is that i just felt like it was so easy to click and get started and just get going right off the bat um, with so much knowledge and so dr sites thanks again for coming back and thanks again for putting up your program yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me. And it's always a pleasure to be here. And yeah, we would love to uh, support anyone who is uh, looking to pass that National Registry exam. We've had a lot of success. Actually, we've got like a 94% pass rate uh, with students who go through our program. Um, and it's fun. We make it enjoyable and fun. And then, uh, as like I said, because we like to work with you guys, we offer a 20% discount with the code EMS2020, EMS2020. Type that in when you uh, put in your subscription and uh, 20% off. So, awesome. Yeah. yeah so, so do that. And I also say, even if you're not uh, prepping for a test, uh, it's just good knowledge to have at, at really any given, given time in your career uh, to review and uh, keep brushed up. I think Spencer and I have probably drilled this in enough on this show. Uh, and that is like, don't stop learning. I'd say there's never any point in any medical profession, let alone ours, where you, you get to stop learning because we're always learning new things. Things are always changing. And there's always like that thing that we always used to do like a bunch. And then someone's like, Hey, ah, uh, totally stop doing that. And it's not great. And uh, they're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we gotta, you gotta learn. Uh, so that happens uh, in medicine. So you got to keep learning. Uh, and Dr. Seitz uh, has a great program at sightsandsirens.com that can help you do that. Do you, mi- do you mind if I plug my podcast really quick? Plug yeah, away. No, absolutely. All right. Really quick. So again, going back on that, just kind of continuing education type of thing. So uh, my brother and I, who my brother's a firefighter, paramedic RN. Uh, so him and I do our own little podcast. It's not as good as this one. I'm sorry. I'll just, I'll just say, but uh, it's called back to basics. And uh, we take, you know, different medical topics and we kind of break them down specifically geared towards students. But we've had a lot of seasoned providers say, Oh man, this is such a good review on seizures or such a good review on, you know, head injury and things like that. So, uh, back to basics. It's on our website as well, sitesandsirens.com. Uh, but like I said, if, if maybe like a couple of your listeners wanted to listen to us <laughs> over there, I would, that'd be great. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, go check them I out. Personally, I personally enjoyed the MCI cause that's, that's not something that I do very often at all. And so that was a great refresher. Yeah. 
we just we just did one on snake envenomations, and I hate snakes. And oh wow, no probes. Yeah, it was. Uh, we pretty much just talked about how great we are with snakes. <laughs> <laughs> you and Indiana Jones, man. Yeah, yeah. there's a little bit of clin- uh, clinical uh, <clears throat> knowledge that was maybe put in at the end. But otherwise, it was just me. Like it's like I'm terrified of snakes, and I just it's like knowing the enemy too well. So I'm like, well, did you know? I'm like a snake expert because of my fear. So it was uh, <laughs> check it out, check it out. Back to basics. Uh, I said that's on our website, sightsandsirens.com. All right. So a couple clarifications from our last episode. In our last episode, um, we talked about God. What was our last episode? <laughs> that's a great way to start this bit. No editing. Uh, was that was one, the uh, it was the uh, patient with the tracheostomy. Oh, and too. just everything get just oh god, yeah, just and painful. poor Sisyphus just trying to push that boulder <clears throat> up that hill. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we got a couple clarifications to make. So on our last episode, uh, won the battle but lost the war. Uh, at one point in time, an IO uh, interosseous needle is uh, getting put into the patient, and we talked about. Uh, I think one of us had mentioned like, hey, like the yellow needle is pretty well suitable for any patient. Uh, in that episode, they didn't have a yellow needle. All they had was a blue needle and they had a patient that was definitely a yellow needle patient. Yellow needle, bigger needle, by the way, longer. Uh, one person wrote back and said, hey, um, but wouldn't it be true if you used a yellow needle on a patient that's too small, you could basically just go straight through the bone and like out the other side and not into the vascular system uh, that you need. And so in theory, yes, like that's possible. But in order to do that, especially in an adult, uh, that would be and I put in a lot of IO. So I I feel very confident saying this. And that is that that would be pretty difficult because when you're getting through the outside of the bone and you're in that right spot, there's a give. Once you get through and you're in the place where you want to be, the needle will kind of jump forward just a little bit and it will spin a little more freely in, in your end. So you would have to. In order to accomplish the, this error, this mistake, your technique would have to be uh, pretty well off because the goal of an IO needle is not to drill it down to the hub. The goal is to drill until you're in. And if you were to continue to drill down to the hub, yes, you could in theory punch through one side, you'd feel that give, get to the other side, meet resistance, and you'd have to then continue drilling. But it would be <laughs> fairly apparent to you that, hey, something is up. Now, what I will say is in the case of pediatrics, where you have a smaller bone and a, you know less of a space to get into and that that's going to be more likely. Um, so I can see that being an issue. In those cases, we do have pediatric needles. And I think the pediatric needle in pediatric cases are totally appropriate. And I think that is something like I, I personally would be like, yeah, don't grab the yellow needle, grab the PD needle, needle on a PD. But when you're talking about adults, um, personally, in my experience, I've always just grabbed a yellow and just gone in till it's in. And that's how I've used IOs. So yeah, just to address that. I'll say the only time I've ever, because I've had it happen before where I've gone through, but never in an adult. Like you said, it's always in like an, and even like not even, it's like an infant, right? Where you're yeah. trying to like resuscitate and, yeah. and then you, and it's with their small little legs or whatever. If you're doing like a, you know, tibia or something like as soon as you inject even a little bit of fluid, you start to like feel the tenseness in the calf and you just die. It, it's okay. I mean, they, their yeah. bones are more friable. So you're not, but like in an adult, yeah, you're going to, you're going to hit yeah. some got to keep drilling for a while. <laughs> I normally don't figure it out on the infants until I can't get their leg off the table. And then I realize I can't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm, oh. <clears throat> all right. Oh, so, so uh, yeah. let's see. Last week, uh, Spencer put up the 12 lead that we're going to be nope. discussing in this episode. Yeah, no, actually, my wife put up the 12 lead because I tried and the picture <laughs> cut off and it only put up like three leads. And you uh, failed. And then I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Please help me. And she knows how to do social media stuff. And uh, so she fixed it and made it way better than I could have imagined. That's perfect. 
She made you yeah. way better than any of us could imagine. Anyway. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we posted this uh, 12 lead and we asked for your opinions. We kind of gave you a little bit of uh, clinical information, I believe. And uh, these are the responses that we got from all of our listeners. Uh, Michelle Gayon says, give her two Flintstone vitamins. <laughs> Which I think is the best answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I will qualify this. She is not in healthcare. Uh <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? Uh, it's not a wrong answer. Right. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt. Let's be honest. No, certainly not. I mean, it really depends on what flavor you get. Like, if you give someone grape, like, that is shit. Like, that's terrible. <laughs> that's going to hurt because they're going to be like, what's in my mouth? Is this just chalk? Like, is this unflavored chalk? And I'm like, no, it's it, it's grape. Never mind. It's grape. Uh, Samantha asks, uh, did they try to talk her out of having a STEMI? Right. <laughs> And no, they didn't. <laughs> they really should have. I feel like that was the first go-to. Uh, Man, calm down. <laughs> uh, my favorite, though, and this is actually a good Dr. Seitz reference from one of our previous episodes, is uh, Adam Mann, did you try walking it off? I think that is the uh, the best thing. Always, think, yeah. always a viable option, in my opinion. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, if, if there's anything that I know about infarcted hearts, and that is they love an increased cardiac workload. I mean, that's exactly. correct, right? Yeah, that's okay. Perfect. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. If it's if tissue is dying, work it harder. That's what I always say. Pain pain is weakness leaving the body, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> no, I think uh, it's your soul leaving your body. I'm not sure. <laughs> <clears throat> Sean Burke on our Instagram says, uh, ABC's IV O2 monitor, 12 lead, which was already done. Assess for pain, nausea, altered mental status, night headedness. Excellent questions. Assess medical history, allergies, Mona, Fona. Uh, Mona, by the way, is an acronym for morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, and aspirin. And Fona would just be fentanyl instead of morphine. Uh, call report, get asked CVG by report taker. Say, <laughs> I'm about to check. Check CBG and temperature for a little razzle-dazzle. Reassess ABCs, 12-lead pain, second IV as possible, more monophona if necessary. Which, <laughs> well, he at least captured the response that the hospital would give. Yeah, he did. Well, and, and, and overall, like, I don't see much wrong. I mean, no. yes, the, the, this is pretty much I, what you're going to do. I mean, the, the, I, yeah. thought he was, yeah. I thought he was reading a textbook until he got to the razzle-dazzle part. And right, I was exactly. Like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is pretty much what, what you're going to do. I mean, it, it's a solid answer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's some really important parts in that answer that we'll get to for this episode. But uh, moving on, uh, one listener said, uh, definitely anterior septal. Uh, probably has at least a 95% blockage for the LED and check out those Wellen signs in V2 AVL. We will uh, discuss that as well. I was just going to say, like, I would be hesitant to be as confident as this person is in trying to estimate the percentage blockage based on a line scribbled on a piece of paper. Truth. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously it's a 96%. <laughs> right. So, no. uh, come on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Finally, Brock Stewart says, anterior septal STEMI would be my obvious thought. There's more than enough information here to activate. Chest pain V2 through V4 have ST elevation. There is reciprocal depression in two. Uh, follow STEMI protocols, activate the code STEMI, and get them to a PCI-capable facility. I'm not seeing peaked T waves, early repoll, V... Uh, left ventricular hypertrophy strain pattern, brugadas, or evidence of pericarditis, I would feel very comfortable calling this a STEMI. A posterior 12 lead might help. And I would say, like, to me, that's the most complete answer, because I think uh, kind of 
it kind of you know in, encompasses what we need to do. I mean, calling the systemy. I mean, it doesn't go into the the nitty gritty that uh, Sean Burke uh, put into his in terms of exactly what you're going to do. But in terms of what the twelve lead was, I really like his answer, and I agree. A posterior twelve lead uh, might give you some additional information. They're hard to do in EMS when someone's flat on a gurney and they're seat belted in, and you're driving around. But um, you know, well, I like what he did here too because he said, "Looks like a STEMI, right? Yeah. Enough data to support a STEMI." Enough data to say it's probably not a STEMI distractor, which is what he listed there, right? Some of those things. Yeah. yeah. And now let's study STEMI. Let's follow STEMI protocol. And like that's like, uh, I love that approach of like, we're not going to read too much into this. We're going to call it what it is, which is we're going to assume it's the most life threatening thing based on the evidence we have. And we're going to, yeah, I love it. Looks good. Absolutely. Yeah. Good call. And, and you two can interact with us. <clears throat> Oof. Wow. Yeah. This is why you don't us. take this from me. But if you want to try, us. go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, man. <laughs> <clears throat> us is apparently a strong word uh you too can interact with us if you don't already social media shout outs we have ems 2020 on facebook we have ems 2020 show on instagram and you can email us your calls at ems 2020 podcast at gmail.com all right well hey spence i think you're bringing uh you're bringing all the words you have all the work i think uh I- dr sites and i are just gonna take pop shots from the corner and I'm I'm so excited seeing as how I struggled to say the word us earlier. Yeah, so right. That's, yeah, that's this should be, be fine. Let's add more words to that. This will definitely be one of the shorter episodes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Captain Sully is an eight-year paramedic. They submitted this story to us via the EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com email address, which is where you should too send us your calls. Even better, they included a series of 12 leads, which were monumentally helpful for us. Uh, their partner for the shift is co-pilot famous actor Aaron Eckhart, because wow. who fucking really remembers the actual co-pilot's name from the event? Uh, but the guy. actor... <laughs> right, right. Fair, yeah. you know <laughs> but the he's actor probably like, he probably like saw he's probably like i was there and everybody's like oh shut up man sit down he's like no really i was i was like, oh yeah okay whatever he probably just, they probably nobody believes him at all and you know what? like he, he probably sits down when he gets really drunk he's like you know everyone said captain Sully was one of it. <laughs> well it was actually me that guy was losing his shit, man. Yeah. He didn't know what he was doing well, I can't, I can't everything <laughs> yeah but you know who we all remember Aaron Eckert playing that role because that actor, fuck, I like that guy. Didn't Shin he also, and all. He and played I, Nick I, Naylor, didn't he? Nick Naylor in, um, that was the name of the character. Jesus. Uh, thank you for smoking. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. that was another great movie. I love that movie. Hey, um, really quick, though, I just want to highlight that I got some movie trivia correct, and that's not a big, the common thing for me. So that's, there you go. Yeah. Okay, we can well, move I'm on. Also gonna, I'm also not going to jump back in because this whole co-pilot thing, this is going to mess you guys up. True fact. And the reason I know this is because I run a business with my younger brother and he brought this to my attention one time. Christopher Columbus had a younger brother who went on every single voyage with him. Yeah. And you never hear about the guy. No, you don't. <laughs> it's like this. It's like the co-pilot thing. And yeah. apparently like my brother with, you know, our business together. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's your you know what? We're going to have him on next time. You're, <laughs> you're, you're uninvited. It's going to be Jason. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, fun fact. Uh, Aaron Eckhart grew what has to be the most impressive pilot mustache uh, for this movie. So, yeah, anyway, so there was Captain Sully and uh, co-pilot Aaron Eckert, who uh, co-pilot Aaron Eckert has been a paramedic for about two years. And uh, Sully 
and him have worked together for about uh, six months at the time of this call. So the system that they're working in, it's a very busy urban setting EMS system with a private ambulance company that does all the patient transport with multiple ALS fire agencies in their area who also respond to medical calls. In this system, the ambulance paramedics are essentially uh, the PIC on all calls that they respond to and basically almost immediately on arrival. The ambulance company runs uh, Medic Medic and the shifts are about 12 hours in length. Hopefully this is the last call of the night, and it sounds like a pretty simple one, Captain Sully, paramedic, said to co-pilot paramedic Aaron Eckert, or something thereabouts, because wow. they had just gotten dispatched to a 50-year-old female who called 911 reporting nausea and vomiting at her private residence. It's about 11 p.m., or 2300 hours, and Sully would like nothing more than to fly their ship back home. Hopefully, it will be a simple, straightforward call that will line them up to get off on time. Yeah, I don't know why you would ever start a call saying that. Hopefully, this is our last call of the night. That's just, yeah, that is just tempting. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it right there. Hey, you know what? We all slip sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, and that we was all, it. We all make that mistake. I've uh, I've been known to say, well, what's the worst that could happen? Multiple times. No, oh. no. <laughs> mostly, mostly just to see what the worst that could happen would be. And uh, fun fact, it... <laughs> It gets pretty bad. Yeah, it can get uh, terrible. So, uh, from the location of the residence they were going to, there was a hospital pretty close by. And then from there, it would be an easy shot to the highway to get back to their headquarters to clock out. Sully hopes that it'll just be a patient who needs some Zofran, maybe a line, and that uh, he won't have to be the conductor on some train wreck of a patient. Aaron Eckhart, with that impressively chiseled chin, agreed and shared in that hope. Captain Sully and Aaron Eckert arrive at the address. The first thing they notice is that it's a split-level home with a long, cluttered staircase leading to the front door. The stretcher is parked at the foot of that staircase, and the crew grab their kits, hike up the stairs, and make their way into the home to find... <laughs> Another immediately cluttered inner staircase, which going both up and down. The patient calls out from the upstairs and they make their way up once again with their kits. I know that's important to you, Dr. Said. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, they brought their kits this time. That's amazing. <laughs> All right. We're starting good. Yeah. I'm going to get up there. Yeah, like, oh, happy. man. All we brought was a speaking spell and an easy bake oven. Dang it. <laughs> The patient is not only upstairs, but is also in the smallest half bath possible. To clarify, for those who don't know, a half bath is basically a small bathroom with a toilet and a stand-up shower. It's a small cramped space, which is great for those who like to poop, but also want to feel swaddled like a baby while they do it. <laughs> Unfortunately, this tiny room is barely big enough for one person, let alone two, and Sully is only just able to slide in by himself. Oh, this is not great. This is, I, I don't like being this close to patients, like I do, which sounds, yeah, it's just really- Well, how long have you been a paramedic? I know, I know. And when you're a paramedic, like you are often forced to be close to patients. And what did I do? Like I had a ground transport job where I had like roomy ambulances. And then I'm like, hey, you know what? I don't like to snuggle with patients. Let's put them in a small, tiny helicopter and I'm to get in with them you know like yeah. that's that's what i decided to do to improve well, that's, why I, that's why i became a doc the closest i have to get to a patient is the length of my stethoscope that is as close <laughs> as i possibly have to get everything else can be done from uh usually the door you're walking around so, like well, a, walking around like a well, six wait, foot long stethoscope you have the nurse put it on right, for right. you <laughs> yeah. it's got an extension on it <laughs> 
<laughs> what, what was your uh, what was your dad's uh, saying there, Chris? Uh, which was like you can tell who's been a paramedic for long because yeah. however many years they've been a paramedic is how many feet away from the call they are. Yeah, they will know exactly. Like so, you got like you know those new paramedics kind of inside of five years. You know they stay like right in the patient's face. They're doing the assessments. They're they're the ones touch the patients, doing IVs, that kind of stuff. Then you got the ones been doing it for like 20, 30 years, and they might be in the room with the patient. They might not. <laughs> You know, like they, it's just ugh, they kind of looking. Is there another medic in there? Oh, great, cool. I'm gonna, hold, I'm gonna find the door jam and hold the door open. You know, like, it's, it's just that. Maybe that's maybe that's why Kyle directs traffic. He's exactly, he's just an experienced paramedic. <laughs> yeah. He's just, yeah. Yep. So the patient is described as a non-obese but not thin female found laying at the foot of the toilet in the left lateral recumbent position, and who appears in obvious discomfort. The patient is wearing pajama wear, namely shorts and a sleep t-shirt. Sully sees her, notes her discomfort, and also notes that she's a little on the pale side. Not like, oh, fuck pale, but like pale-esque. Like diet pale? Ooh. Pale like zero? That. I don't pale, know. Ooh, nice. Pale zero. Yes. <laughs> Sully also notes that the abdomen appears distending, a finding that makes him consider that this might in fact be a GI call, given uh, the report. Sully introduces themselves and asks the patient what's going on. The patient reports that she's having severe nausea that woke her up from sleep this evening. She made her way into the bathroom, believing that she was going to throw up. She didn't, but she strongly believed she would. She reports that she's uh, severely nauseated and her husband called 911 on her behalf. Sully notes that the patient is speaking in full sentences and is alert and responding to his questions appropriately. Sully asks their co-pilot, famous actor Aaron Eckert, to hand them the BP cuff, cardiac leads, and SpO2 cable from the monitor from the other side of the door. The monitor won't fit in the room, so Aaron Eckert will operate it from the other side of the bathroom door. As Sully places the leads, he notes that the patient's skin is also just slightly diaphoretic. And that finding makes him wonder if perhaps this isn't going to be the simple Zofran line transport that they were hoping for. Maybe there was something else more sinister at play. Foreshadow, foreshadow, foreshadow. <laughs> I will say this, like diaphoresis for me, like, and it could just be that like, I've just run a number of calls where like the diaphoretic patient has turned out to be like my worst one. But to me, like, I, I think it's kind of like the most underrated skin sign out there. Every time I have a patient that's severely diaphoretic, I'm just like, my shit. And it normally turns out to be something bad. It's just and it's kind of crazy because I, I I don't I don't know what drives this diaphoresis in people. And, and uh, you know, maybe Dr. Seitz, maybe you do. But like we had a guy not too long ago. He is hemodynamically stable. I mean, he is he's great the entire way, but he is having a posterior MI and his he just keeps breaking out in sweats and just so he's actually hypertensive if, if anything he just keeps breaking out sweating like we are just toweling off his head uh, because we feel bad for him and we're just toweling off the guy's head and he's super sweaty so yeah, diaphoresis to me is uh, i'm right there with these medics whenever i see a diaphoretic patient I'm like oh this isn't great yeah yeah the skin don't lie hmm. uh sully so, yeah, uh, there, sorry there's a there's actually a article i'd have to look it up to reference it exactly but literally like it was called like the sweating in myocardial infarction study or something like that. Nice. <laughs> nice. But, but did find that like diaphoresis and said sweating was like one of the more significant symptoms for stem. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Amalma too, on his uh, weekly video cast, I think once said, he's like, 
Yeah, I just, he's like, if they're sweating, they're going to get admitted. That's, <laughs> that's what's happening. Um, yeah, so Sully's in line with this, and he asks the patient, like, hey, are you having any chest pain with this? And the patient reports that she has been having chest pain on and off for the past few days. She reports that she might be having some pain now, but maintains that the nausea is the more prominent complaint. Uh, from the other side of the door, vitals are reported as follows. Blood pressure is 166 over 72. Heart rate's in the 70s. Sinus rhythm, 98% on room air. And respirations are 24. That's not from the other side of the door. That's actually something that Sully counted himself. Oh, I got so, you. I didn't say that'd yeah. be a pretty good job of counting yeah. respirations from the other side of the door. Yeah. Um, Sully also obtained the patient's past medical history while vitals were taken. The patient uh, is an insulin-dependent diabetic, and the only medication that she takes is insulin. Weird. Additionally, she is not taking any medications to treat her current complaint. She has no other past medical history and no allergies. Hmm. Sully asks his co-pilot for the 12-lead cables, and after they're placed, has them take a snapshot 12-lead EKG. The local fire department crew has arrived by this time, and they are standing outside the room with Aaron Eckert and his mustache while the 12 lead <laughs> is being performed. Sully hears the fire medic announce, or ask, sinus, referring to the EKG. Uh, Aaron Eckert allegedly gave them a hefty amount of side eye to go with that fabulous chin, and then passed the EKG to Sully saying, V3, V4. Now, we actually don't have the original EKG from that room as there was some baseline wander in the inferior leads and it didn't get kept. We do, however, have several of the other ones taken. So spoilers there. Uh, but was <clears throat> what was described in the first one was about a millimeter of elevation in V3 with a large prominent T wave and what could be described as a very large T wave in V4 with perhaps a smidgen, which by the way, fun fact, a smidgen in EKG terms is about half a millimeter. <laughs> oh, a, that's like a, that's like a, that's in a text somewhere. Uh, you, you've heard it here on EMS 2021. <laughs> that is on the NREMT. Gotcha. We do cover that in our program. So again, join our program. So you make sure you pass that exam because you wouldn't have known that otherwise. Yeah. And, <laughs> and a scotch is a full millimeter. Just anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of J point elevation in that lead as well. So uh, there was no ST depression noted on the EKG. Sully thinks, ah, shit, as this <laughs> might not be the easy transport they wanted. It might, in fact, be cardiac, but the monitor isn't at all sounding the STEMI alarm. Instead, it says sinus rhythm with right axis deviation. Aaron Eckert and Sully discuss the EKG is borderline bad to both of them. Complicating this, the patient wants to go to a hospital that's actually pretty far away as it's their preferred destination, bypassing several other hospitals on the way. Both she and her husband are insistent that she go there. Sully feels concerned about the patient, but as this isn't a STEMI, they initially agree. But to do anything, they have to get her out of this tiny room and down a lot of stairs. Now, the fire department does have a stair chair, but the issue is that there's actually just a ton of shit in this house, which would make that option take a very long time with everyone trying to move all the stuff out of the way for this chair for the stair chair to get down uh, with the patient on it. Sully, concerned about the time that this would take, asked the patient, do you think you might be able to walk? The patient is initially unsure 
but after being assisted upright and then into a standing position, she reports that she can walk. She did say that she felt lightheaded and a little dizzier while being upright, but was very able to stand and ambulate. So I've always been really curious about when it comes to walking patients, um, especially when you're worried about like cardiac stuff. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend I've never walked a cardiac suspected patients because there have been houses where I'm like, hey, nothing with wheels can get in here uh, unless unless it is a bulldozer, then that could get in here. But nothing else with wheels could get in here. And what I'm curious is like, I mean, in theory, it makes sense. Like you don't want to increase the cardiac demand of a sick heart. I totally understand that. I am curious though, has there, if there's a lot of data, if there's a lot of study on simply ambulating a patient, like does that create a huge, a, a large enough load on the heart where we should really be concerned? Uh, or is it one of those things where, because I, I look at the safety of it, but maybe this is just me in my upper 30s now being like, hey, my back sucks. And like hurting myself over and over again and hurting paramedics and people in the industry over and over again doesn't help, you know, people in the long run, doesn't help the industry or the patients in the long run to have a bunch of injured providers out there. And so I always kind of wonder this. I always kind of sit here and weigh this in my head about like, hey, like how much damage are you really causing just to have someone ambulate, you know, a few feet? And so I don't know if there's data behind that. I don't know if there's any way to tell. I don't know if it's one of those things where it's like, hey, you're really likely to hurt somebody or if it's like, yeah, you might hurt them, but maybe not. Obviously, everything is is on a spectrum, right? Like, yeah. one, like, what's your intention, right? Like, this is, if you if you just don't want to carry a patient <laughs> or just want to move them and you're just going to make everybody walk, it's probably not the best for the patient. But also keep in mind that, like, if you come into my ER and you're like, man, I've been having intermittent chest pain and we're like, well, your troponins look okay, but we're not sure we're going to put you on a treadmill. Like that's what we do, right? Oh, gotcha. like, we put you on, like, we're going to have you run until we sh- prove that your heart can't handle it anymore. I mean, it's literally like, that's what a stress test is, right? Or we're going to give you, you know, medications to speed your heart. So are you going to cause like irreversible? No. Right. I mean, right. You could put your patient at risk of like worsening symptoms, syncopal episode. Fall. I mean, th- th- you know, there, there is like some risk there. I don't think you have to worry about like, straining their heart so much that they're going to now go into cardiac arrest. Yeah. If you're having them just walk, a, you know, a few feet or, or that kind of thing. Yeah. I'll say that. And then tomorrow someone will like have one of their patients like walk up a flight of stairs and they'll code on them or something. I don't know. Right. I mean, it's just like everything, with, <laughs> yeah. everything yeah. with a grain of salt. Yeah. But again, yeah, I mean, just keep that in mind. We, we do like, we put these patients through those type of stressors to, <laughs> to show cardiac ischemia, to cause cardiac ischemia so that we can see it. So yeah, having a patient ambulate a couple feet or, get out of the stretcher themselves or in this case even like i mean if you're looking at like oh this is going to be a prolonged extrication basically getting this lady down these stairs versus having her well yeah i mean time is of the essence right so yeah yeah. and that's that was the piece for me that i was kind of like yeah you know like there's competing values here there's the value of like hey i don't want to put my patient at risk but I, there's a value of like, hey, I don't want to take like four hours to like move her shit around. Because that's down. also bad for that's, her. Yeah, that's also yeah. bad. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's also bad. So, all right. So it basically comes down to like, yeah, if they look like they can handle it in its skin and, 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 and like the alternative could be worse than walk them. But yeah, have a good reason right. to walk them. Right. If you just don't want to go get your stretcher, I right. mean, let's, you know, maybe reevaluate what's your. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Dr. Seitz said it was fine. They could walk. You could walk. I'm pretty sure he said not to ever bring the stretcher in even. It's actually good for them. Exactly. That's what they do in the hospital. It's good for them. Yeah. Make them run. We we're going to do the stress test. Yeah, you know what? They need to walk off that MI. Right back to that again. 
All right. Come back to the ER. And like, Dr. Sykes, don't worry. We already took care of the stress test. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, don't worry about it. We already, uh, we already took care of it. Uh, oh, we heard no. you on that podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. oh, hey, you told us to do. That's not what I said. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note, uh, the monitor was DC'd for this plan, uh, taken off for this plan. Uh, but uh, Sully feels a strong radial pulse that doesn't change when the patient stands up and... Walking with one provider in front and one provider behind, they move with the patient towards the stairs. They take the first staircase in the house. The patient has to take a rest at the base of that and does so without warning. Essentially, what happened was the patient just sits down at the top of the set of stairs running from the porch to the stretcher uh, and is very out of breath. The patient apologizes and says she just needs a quick break as she feel like she might pass out. Sully is now very concerned and rethinking their earlier kind of tentative agreement to go to the farther hospital. So they give the patient a moment's break and then they assist her in getting down the rest of the staircase to the waiting stretcher. Once on the stretcher, Sully tells the patient that he's not sure that he's going to be able to take her to that hospital, the the hospital that she wants to go to, and that she might have to go to a closer hospital, but probably not the closest hospital as that one lacks uh, a cath lab. So they load her into the ambulance and Sully decides to run a second 12 lead. And that's the one that everyone who's on our Facebook page and Instagram page has seen and got to weigh in on. So they have the advantage here. The second 12 lead had one big difference. The T wave in V4 was now noticeably larger. However, the monitor doesn't think much of the 12 lead and maintained that this is fine. There's nothing to see here. Move along. Captain Sully, just like in the movie, had a sudden flashback to some earlier paramedicing he had done in his career. He recalls a time, a year or so prior, where he took a patient from a clinic who was having chest pain and who had concerning uh, a concerning EKG for possible STEMI. In that case, they saw that first uh, EKG taken by the office and went, oh God, and then got the patient out to the rig and ran their own 12 lead. But their own 12 lead was completely normal. Unsettled by this finding, they transported and code one and just continued to run repeat 12 leads during the trip. None of those repeats announced STEMI, but all of those 12 leads certainly changed over the course of their transport. There would be large T waves in one, and in the next one, those T waves would be normal, and then they'd be large again later, maybe with some depression. Then in another repeat, they'd be normal again. Sully remembers being very vexed by those findings and feeling like something was going on, but ultimately they didn't activate and missed the STEMI that day because they didn't at the time appreciate the dynamic nature of STEMIs, and none of those EKGs on their monitor announced, hey, this is a STEMI. But back to Sully in this moment. Aaron Eckert from the co-pilot seat of the plane asked Sully, can we land at the airport? Or are you really taking us into the Hudson? Shit. Okay, that's not right. Uh, back to Close. this particular Close EMS enough. call. <laughs> Co-pilot Aaron Eckert, prominent chin and all, asks, what do you think? Sully, seeing the second EKG with the larger than previous T waves in V4, and despite the monitor not saying STEMI, commits. We're going to make this a STEMI activation. Now, the logistical problem with the decision is as follows. It's been a really busy night in this EMS system, and a lot of the hospitals in this area are on total ambulance divert. 
the closest hospital with a cath lab, the Hudson River Hospital, just happens to have that status. So real quick, total ambulance divert. Uh, so this is something that happens. So especially for those of you guys that are not list us that are not in the medical field or specifically EMS, total ambulance divert means exactly what it sounds like. They're not accepting ambulances. Um, this happens for a couple of reasons. The reasons that I'm familiar with is basically um, they are full. They're at capacity and capacity can mean either they have more patients than the amount of staff they have to care for these patients or they physically do not have rooms or beds to put patients on. And so they'll go on total ambulance divert. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no way to get to that hospital. Uh, In the area that Spencer and I work with, we have kind of an odd position we're put in, in the sense that um, we can't take somebody somewhere they don't want to go. That's kidnapping. But we also... uh, absorb a lot of liability if we refuse to take somebody somewhere you know like so basically our choices are like if someone says hey i will only go to this hospital i can't say no you're going to go to a different one because i can say no that i'm not going uh and that puts me in the position of absorbing a lot of liability by just not taking them so more often than not what ends up happening in this case if they want to go to a hospital that's on total ambulance divert we have to let them know like okay we can do that but you're probably going to go out in the triage area and you're going to sit out with everybody else, even with your symptoms. Uh, and this could hurt you. Like they're, they, they're physically are not staffed to take care of you. That they, they are, they are out. Like you want an M&M and the M&M jar is empty. Like you can't have there. It's not there. You know, you can't have it. Um, you have to wait until more M&Ms go in the jar, no matter what. And I've had patients not believe me. And we've gone there and they're like, wait, you're really going to put me on the lobby? I'm like, yeah, like there, there's no, you don't understand. Like if, unless you want to lay on the floor in the hallway out there, like there's no place to put you. Uh, the other place, uh, the other way to override this is if you have something that is severe, such as a code 99, like no heart, no breathing or no, well, you have a heart, but it's not beating uh, and you're not breathing. Um, oftentimes, a lot of it, places when they go on total ambulance divert, they have no rooms except for one. And that one room is the code room and that in you have to be pretty well dead or or or, or trying to be dead to get into that room. Um, so, Dr. Seitz, is there anything like where you work? Is that something you guys get to deal with? Is this something that you're familiar with or? Yeah, so there the actually a hospital I worked at in the Detroit area. We had like one real real bad year where just we, it was real sick population. I think it was like flu season, which was like one of the worst ones. And we actually went on total ambulance divert like a couple times. Um, obviously, like it, it, it typically doesn't last long because like it doesn't really work in us in the hospital system for hospitals to be like, ah, oh, you know what. We can't see anybody else. Like, it's, right. I mean, so it's usually, usually like, you know, hopefully it's like, you know, 30 minutes and we scramble and pull more staff in or do what we have to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does happen. Um, we kind of fall into a more aggressive triage pattern when that happens. So we try to like, you know, if you're in my waiting room and you're the next one to come in and you stubbed your toe, well, I, I might not let you take a bed knowing that. Yeah, you know, I do have an ambulance system out, or I do have an EMS system that could be, you know, what I mean, so we do try to try to do that. Um, but yeah, it does happen. I think for the most part, most patients, like if you just tell them they can't go there, they gotta go somewhere else. They usually like, oh yeah, if they're truly an emergency, if they, you know, if they're truly an emergency, like, and you say, hey, listen, like we gotta get you help, 
that hospital we can't go to because they're at capacity. They can't help you right now. I got to take you here. They're not going to like argue with you yeah. for the most part. Obviously there's yeah. exceptions to every rule, but, um, yeah. But yeah, no, this, this does happen I, where I'm at now. Like I said, uh, I do a lot more travel medicine now. So I'm working at hospitals that, uh, we don't hit capacity as, as quickly, um, or as aggressively as we did like in the Detroit area. But, um, but we will divert ambulance for things that we can't handle. So in some of the more rural hospitals I work at, um, a lot of times they'll call in and say what they have and depend on the severity, whether it's a severe trauma, you just don't have the surgical capabilities to take or, I said, we don't have a cath lab where I'm at currently uh, this evening. So I would divert so STEMIs and things like that. But the total ambulance divert is kind of a different designation. Like you said, it's more of, hey, you know what? Like we can't take any ambulances right now um, for whatever reason. But again, usually it's very, usually it's very limited. Usually it's a very short period of time, uh, but it does happen. Yeah, yeah very yeah. true. And a lot of times, if my understanding is correct, and maybe this is sort of an just in our area, like if you have somebody that's on total ambulance divert, but you're like, Hey, I have a stroke or I have a STEMI, then they'll, at that point they're like, well, they're, they're probably just going to go up to the, like the neuro ICU or they're going to go up to the cath lab. And so it's like, okay, well then yeah, you can like those get a pass. They can come in. Um, the ED typically is unhappy about it, but yeah. Yeah. Like if you, if you have a, you know, our job is to take care of, life-threatening emergencies if you have a cardiac arrest or something something that like has to come in well you know we'll make room i've i've coded people in hallways before if i have to like you know so yeah we we can like i said we can rapidly triage and switch it's more of a systems issue than it is a capability issue most of the time yeah capable of you know treating them we just don't the system is not working in the way that we can do so as effectively as we should be able to whether it's staffing or bed bed issues or things like that. So nice. that's a perfect way to put it. All right. So yeah, but they decide that despite the hospital being on total ambulance divert, it's got a cath lab and that's where they're going. So the patient is given 324 uh, PO of baby aspirin and an IV is initiated. The patient is then given eight milligrams IV Zofran per their protocol for her severe nausea. And it's about uh, 15 to 20 minute transport code three and they are already on their way. During the transport, the patient is asked more about her chest pain. So, you know, she said you had a couple days of chest pain, and the patient clarifies, well, it's been about a week. It's been more noticeable the last few days. The patient states that for the week, it's been present, but over the past uh, two to three days, it's gotten noticeably worse. She says that when the pain is present, nothing seems to make it better or worse. She describes the pain as sharp and radiating to the right side of her chest and also into the back between her shoulders. She rated it as a seven out of 10. Hearing the words sharp slowly checks a BP in both arms and finds them to be equal. Vitals, by the way, are heart rate 70, blood pressure 144 over 71 via the non-invasive blood pressure cuff. Uh, SpO2 is 98% and respirations are 20 a minute. Sully radios into Hudson Hospital and advises them that they're about to receive a code 3 STEMI patient. Hudson Hospital, icily, responds back that they're on total ambulance convert. Yeah, that was subtle. No, I like it. That's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sully, not deterred, responds again that like, yeah, okay, but But this is a STEMI patient and you are the closest hospital with a cath lab. A disgruntled copy acknowledges this and Aaron Eckert continues to pilot them in code three expertly. 
Of course he I'm does. I'm thinking back to our first thing where he's like, I was there, man. I did things. <laughs> <laughs> I did things. I did things. Uh, so during the trip, uh, after the report, the patient is given one nitroglycerin tab, which changes the pain from sh- uh, from a sharp pain to a dull pain, but it remains at a 7 out of 10. More 12 leads are run with some subtle but pretty significant changes uh, over the course of the transport, which we've posted to our Facebook and Instagram page and we'll talk about after this call. The monitor still doesn't say acute STEMI, however, and fun fact, it never does. <laughs> now, Chris, you'll love this. During the trip, the husband has been following the ambulance oh, while fuck. it's going code three mm, through fuck. every light and intersection. Perfect. Sully sees this from the back window and asks the patient if she's able to call her husband and ask him not to follow the ambulance going code three. You know, maybe not break the law. <laughs> well, the, pa- the patient apologizes for her husband and calls him to tell him to stop. Uh, he does get mad and yells that he's not breaking the law, but then also does stop breaking the law. Okay. But- and here, here's my thing about it. And it's it's this, and you're right. I do love this. Um, I love it. At like I, I hate it. it. It's one of those things where I just I, I get that there's a lot of emotion involved. But if I could tell people, like it's kind of like I don't 100 percent know what difference you believe you're going to make by by being there at the same time because you're not going to see like I'm going to go in there with this cath lab patient. I'm going to see a doc. Uh, and the docs would be like, yeah, uh, woof, we're going to go right up to the cath lab. And that's kind of how that's going to work. Typically, like they're going to be in surgery by the time you get checked in. And the other thing is, it would be one thing like, hey, if you want to ride along, ride along. I get that. Be as close as you can. But if you're driving your own vehicle and, and you're doing that, like one, it puts a lot of pressure on us. And oftentimes we have to lock up our ambulance brakes because someone doesn't know what license sirens means. And they walk right out in front or they drive right out in front. And then like what? Then your car ends up, you know in the patient compartment as well, like on top of your loved one, like that's not great. You know, and there's just a lot of danger involved in doing this and it helps nothing. And it just, you're just serving to make a bad day even worse. And so, yeah, don't, don't do this. Don't follow the ambulance uh, behind. And also another thing like police escorts, I'm not going to say they're not a thing. I'm going to say they are super duper rare, like uh, like getting a police escort somewhere because, yeah, it's there's a lot of training that goes into driving that ambulance like that or driving that police car like that. And a lot of people are going to be like, yeah, you know, but uh, Mr. Burgess, I think you can nail this. Just keep up. Like No one's going to do that. <laughs> I, You know, and even more uh, important here uh, if you're following another vehicle going code three and you are also going code three, that's lights and sirens. Uh, the person, the, the crew that's in the most danger is actually the second unit going yeah. code three because everyone sees the first one and then they go like, okay, well that's gone. All right. And then they pull out in front of the second one and wreck into the second one. Yes. So, very true. Yeah. And so if you don't even have lights and sirens, then you're just even more at risk. Yeah. So, all right. So the patient is brought into the emergency department and the charge nurse dubbed NTSB officer, Mike O'Malley, uh, and you can Google Mike O'Malley, uh, is clearly irritated that a patient was brought into the ED by Captain Sully and co-pilot famous actor Aaron Eckert. They do get into one of the rooms 
And one of the well-known and really well-liked by EMS doctors, much like our own Dr. Seitz. I was going to say, I was just, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, kind of guy. Then. by the definition, I guess that was me there. Oh, yeah. I, don't know, I don't remember this call, but oh, yeah, yeah. cool, awesome. <laughs> they come in and they take a look at the 12 leads. Hudson Hospital's version of Dr. Seitz says uh, this about the STEMI activation. Well, maybe. I'll text a picture of this to the cardiologist and see what they think. This is for sure me. <laughs> this is exactly what I would have done. Yep. Nope. I got to talk. I have to talk about Mike O'Malley just really quick. So Mike O'Malley <laughs> happens to be the actor's name of another character in the movie Sully, which no one's going to remember the, the, the name of the character. Oh, by the way, really quick. Um, the co-pilot, his name was Jeff Skiles. Yeah. Aaron Eckert. Yeah. Right. No, Aaron Eckert. No, but I appreciate you actually I, giving him a real name. That poor guy probably listens to this podcast and he's like, they are, they're not even using that. <laughs> it's it's not still not, I'm still not getting credit. Yeah. We contributed to his drinking problem. He's drunk, walking yeah, around exactly. the house, the neighbors come over. Is everything okay? No, no. Uh, Jeff just heard someone else call him uh, Aaron Eckert. And, uh, <laughs> Aaron Eckert. <laughs> he's, uh, he's having another day. Uh, but anyway, there's... Um, <laughs> but so Michael Malley, I first... <laughs> recognized Mike O'Malley, the name from way back when, when he hosted a show on Nickelodeon called guts. And it was basically just teenagers doing weird obstacles. It was basically like the, the show Wipeout. And if you guys watch that, where it's like these obstacle courses that are impossible, it was that, but with teenagers and that's not helpful to this show. But it is, <laughs> it is something that pops into my head. Yeah, I had to get it because every time I see him, I just want it. Because so at the very end, like they had this main obstacle, and I just every time I see him, anything like okay, any moment he's going to yell it now. Any moment he's going to look at the screen, he's going to yell it now. They have to climb the aggro crag, and that's going to pop out, and it never does any single time. But basically, yeah, it was a great show where they just tied children uh, to ropes that hang from the ceiling, where so they could jump higher and um, probably destroy their knees. So uh, it's a good show. It's called Nickelodeon Guts. Check it All out. right. <laughs> well, the crew cleared the call and headed back to base. But here's the follow-up. Sully was at Hudson River Hospital the next day and followed up with the doctor. And the doctor said that the cardiologist texted them back and said, yeah, I'll be there in three minutes. The patient was subsequently taken up to the cath lab emergently and had a stent placed in her mid-LAD vessel. We don't know the exact amount of occlusion. Yeah, we do. But <laughs> say if you say 95%, I'm going to be so angry right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and perfect. I imagine that nurse NTSB officer O'Malley gave that like weird nod of approval at the end of all this, just like in the movie Sully. So <laughs> that's the call. Let's dive in and review this. All right. So quick end of call summary. So we start off. Uh, it's the last call. It's, it's the last call of the day. And Sully like an idiot, uh, <laughs> verbally hopes for, for an easy one. Uh, Aaron Eckert uh, or Jeff Skiles uh, are dispatched to a nausea, uh, nausea and vomiting call. They find the patient upstairs in the smallest space possible. Um, thank goodness there's a toilet in there too. And after seeing the patient and hearing the complaint, they decide to do a 12 leap, which is totally pertinent, which uh, has some concerning features. So the patient uh, ambulates down the stairs to the stretcher and another 12 lead is performed, which does have some changes from the first. Sully then decides that the only option is to land this patient at the Hudson Hospital, despite being told that they should totally divert. Uh, they give the patient Zofran, aspirin, and a nitro tab in route, and they also do multiple 12 leads, which I think is a solid move, uh, yep. which continue to change, but they never quite say STEMI on them. Uh, and as it turns out, 
Right call was made. It was a STEMI. Wow, that's a perfect summary. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, so there's quite a bit to talk about. Um, and let's start with what I feel is the best part of this call, the EKGs. You would, you nerd. Yeah, right? Mm. All right, so in my opinion, one of the most standout, awesome features of this call was the repeat 12 leads done. And yes, like we'll talk about and go into the features from the first 12 lead we got, which again, for the record, was the second 12 lead taken as the first one uh, wasn't kept. Um, I like to think of 12 leads this way. It's basically, it's a still shot from a movie. It's a single frame captured from an exactly 96 minute movie, which is exactly the length of the movie Sully. Uh, <laughs> sometimes captured in that still, in that single frame of the movie is enough information to figure out like what's going on in the movie. Like if you see a picture of an airplane appearing to splash into a river, you can sort of guess from that single frame that the plot of the movie will probably center around like, huh, I bet things went incredibly wrong on that flight. Right. But what what if that single shot is just of an airport or like a plane appearing to take off? You can't really tell what the movie's about. It's just the one shot. You know, maybe the movie's about a plane or maybe not at all. So what do you need to do to figure it out? Well, you'll need another still shot from just a little later in the movie. And by the way, don't wait too long. If the next shot you get is the credits, you've probably waited <laughs> too long. <laughs> yeah, they're all flat. That's, uh, <laughs> but the same rule applies with 12 leads. Sometimes in that single shot, you have all the information you need to decide whether or not something is a STEMI. If there's ST elevation, if there's reciprocal depression, there's hyperacute T waves, etc., and you have a symptomatic patient, you kind of have everything you need in that one shot. Like, awesome. But sometimes you don't. Sometimes the 12 leads you take don't have enough information yet. So you need to take another. And that's what the paramedic in this call did. They saw one that had some very concerning features, and then they took another and they made the right call. How often should you do this? I, for EMS, I say Q10 to 15, um, but I, you know, I don't have any real data to support that assertion. So yeah, there's a couple, and a couple of things I also want to point out about uh, 12 leads and what causes the changes in 12 leads that lead to things like ST elevations is you got to understand that these, the ST elevation that occurs in a 12 lead is due to an, a change in the electrophysiology of some cells in the heart due to ischemia. Um, however, uh, chest pain uh, comes from just the start of ischemia. So it's very uh, common to have someone who has chest pain from ischemia, but has not had enough ischemia long enough or enough ischemia to cause those electrophysiological changes uh, in the heart itself. So you can have someone who totally has an infarction, totally has chest pain, has all these other symptoms, and then pops up with a negative 12 lead. And so that's why I think like the 12 leads are great, but like Spence said, one 12 lead is not the end all be all. And you should probably keep taking them, especially if you have someone who's continually symptomatic. And it's also not your only diagnostic tool. I have made uh, plenty, I have done plenty of code three runs 
ones where I've called in and said, hey, uh, I got a 12 lead that is fairly inconclusive, but this is my patient that I have. They have all the lifestyle risk factors. They're diaphoretic, because obviously that's my big problem with people. Uh, you know, their vital signs look this way and they look this way. And uh, yeah, this, this does not look like a healthy patient. We're going to come in with our lights and sirens going uh, and those kind of things. And so anyway, that's just kind of my point to make is that yeah. uh, just kind of back yeah, there you go like i i even gave them the two flintstone vitamins right still yeah diaphoretic although you know they might know that you're the host of a podcast so that that might make them sweaty too that's that, right exactly i don't actually do any of this i just have a show <laughs> it's, it's all fake uh, <laughs> i'm actually, I am actually played by aaron eckert i'm not actually <laughs> nice so the point being that a series of stills tells more story than a single frame and this was an absolutely stellar move by sully and honestly really the entire reason we're using this call is that he took a series of 12 leads and you can actually see the evolution of a STEMI that was happening um so let's talk about what those concerning features of the 12 lead were and for those that haven't gotten to see the 12 leads please go to our face Facebook face Graham. <laughs> good job. You guys got, Facebook. you guys got a face Graham. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> oh, good. Got to get yeah. out, man. Get more <laughs> listeners that way. It's all about face Graham. And take a look, please. If you can look with us, if, as we go over them, because 12 leads are really more of a visual medium and a visual skill. And just hearing us talk about this in this audio format, just probably won't be as beneficial. Uh, we want you to see what we're describing so that you can appreciate these features for yourself. And okay, as an you've aside, got a straight line and a little bump, and then you have a spike, <laughs> oh, and God, then there's no. another straight line and a no, bigger bump. No, no, no. And then you have. <laughs> um, as another aside, I will once again recommend uh, ekgweekly.com. Uh, Dr. Amal Matu puts on an incredible weekly video cast. Uh, about 12 leads, which is perfect for EMS practitioners, and it's dirt cheap. It's uh, $26 a year for a year subscription. So I typically start all my 12 lead readings the same way. I start by letting my gut tell me what it is, what it thinks is going on, because that just seems to be how I'm wired. And then you read after the top. <laughs> <laughs> but after my gestalt weighs in, I go back and actually make myself start over with a systematic approach to make sure I'm actually reading the thing and not missing vital, important things. It's really fun when you're like, all right, it's a STEMI. And then they're like, yeah, and there's a complete heart block. And you're like, there's a what? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah. yeah so it is. Um, so we're going to start with that first 12 lead, and then we'll move on to the last one. So... I usually start with rate, rhythm, and axis. Um, axis to me is somewhat useless in EMS, but mm, I still use it. So, so with this EKG, I see a rate of 71 because the monitor conveniently tells us um, right at the top. It says 71 beats per minute. I thought you were I, just that good at like at like a Q wave to Q wave spacing or QRS complex to QRS or R wave to R wave spacing, like in, in your calculations. No, no, like no, man. I'm all about cheating. If the monitor gives one. me information, um, you know, like for instance, like the QRS duration or like the PR interval, I like I use that shit. I'm like, I'm not counting this on my own. Wow. All uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we know the rate. 
I see P waves before every QRS and I see the PR intervals that look the same. I don't see patterned clumping together of QRS complexes like you might expect to see in a second degree block. Uh, there is right axis deviation present because the QRS complex in lead one is negative, which means there's a downward deflection. And in leads two and three, it's positive, meaning there's an upward deflection. The QRS goes up. Okay. Mm. So that's the boring stuff. Let's get to the fun stuff. Um, Dr. Seitz, what do you see on this 12 lead that concerns you? I'm actually surprised that so many people commented on this post is like, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cause I mean, I'm looking at it and I'm like, yeah, V3 specifically to me looks like there could be some ST elevation. Other than that, I don't really see anything that like jumps out at me. Like, okay, so V3, yes, ST elevation, right? ST elevation has to be greater than two millimeters by definition, which again, how we decided that kind of just, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. But you know, yeah. I mean, so like, so like, I do think the T wave in V4 looks pretty hyper acute. Yeah. And the inversion in AVL, I mean, on the first couple, I don't know if I'd give it much thought. Maybe a little bit deeper than, than ones I've seen before, but I don't know. I think at this point, especially in the beginning, yeah, when you take an EKG, like you said, it's a snapshot in this moment. If this patient told me I feel perfectly fine, I wouldn't call this anything. And I'm going to be honest with you, the cardiologist will do the same thing. Yeah. Because I doubt that the ER physician called the cardiologist, even with the last EKG, and said, hey, take a look at this EKG. Tell me what you think. And the cardiologist said, I'll be down in three minutes. What happened was, and I would bet money on this, is that the ER doctor said, hey, take a look at the EKG. Also, this patient's complaining of chest pain and is diaphoretic and is super nauseous and vomit and like vomiting. Yeah. And then the, and then the cardiologist was like, yeah, I'll be down in three minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's just, it's not like I, you know, again, I think that we love to Monday morning quarterback EKGs. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a favorite pastime in emergency medicine and EMS. Um, but again, I think when, if I saw this originally, like, yeah, with the patient's symptoms, would I be concerned like the paramedic was? Yeah, absolutely. Again, V3, I think I see a little bit of ST elevation there. V4's T wave looks a little hyperacute and, I don't know, even AVR's T-wave depression, I don't know if I'd get too excited about. Just as yeah. my first kind of overview of looking at, at what at looking at it the first time. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of one of the things that sort of comes in is like, yeah, the patient picture, the overall patient picture is really important. Um, and again, and it's also one of those things is whenever you have a, a podcast that specifically uh, does calls where patients aren't doing well and they put up a 12 lead, like people tend to look, uh, you know, like it's, it's a, yeah. like, we wouldn't be like, hey guys, it's a normal 12 lead. What do you think? Um, well, but you know so, what? Like that would be awesome because this happens too. Like we like to talk about the times we're like, and guess what? patient with the cath lab they had a widow maker they had 95 percent. i have had patients just like this who have gone to cath lab and i've gotten a call 30 minutes later being yeah we found nothing clean coronaries yeah. super weird the cardiologist is like weird huh okay cool here's your bill for however you know, but like, yeah, exactly. this happens just as often i would almost argue so like 
I think we have to be careful. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. one piece of a, a lot of other things going on. And I think what Spencer has mentioned in previous episodes we've had, where you know basically all twelve leads are a are on a spectrum of probability. None of them are one hundred percent. Like I mean, you, you'd have you know your your typical you know like inferior you know, inferior lead elevation you know and all that stuff, and and it's all a degree of probability. And I think the other thing too, specifically when we're talking about anterior leads, which is what we're seeing here, V two, V three, V four. Um, when we're talking about these uh, like anterior septal leads, you don't get a lot of the telltale signs because the depression's occurring where? Well, on the backside. And none of these are posterior leads. And so typically, you know, in your most of your STEMI indicators on a 12 lead, you have elevation with some associated depression on the reciprocal sides. Well, reciprocal to anterior is posterior leads, which we just generally don't do. Yeah. And so you just don't have yeah. the typical indicators on this one. I agree the patient being, you know, sick, diaphoretic, and symptomatic is a really strong part of that, you know, because it, like you said, Dr. Seitz, if, if this patient were looking at me, you know, I, I don't know why I would have done a 12 lead on a patient who wasn't symptomatic, but if they, you know, if there were no symptoms and I did this 12 lead and I was like, Hey, how are you doing? And they were like, just dandy. I'd be like, huh? Wow. They've got some ST elevation in, in V3, maybe a little in V2 and like a big T wave and V4 because like nothing is going on. But at a patient where something is going on, I scrutinize a lot more and I think we have to. So if two millimeters is the standard, it's in context with the QRS. You know, like if it's a small QRS complex, like you'll see an AVL in the limb leads and the augmented leads, we often, you know, one millimeter is the standard, but like if the elevation in AVL is like half a millimeter, but the QRS depth is only like a millimeter deep, then that ST elevation is actually pretty significant in that lead. Um, anterior leads, the, the rule is typically two, but I also, I don't like the rules because I think the rules um, don't fit very well for a lot of patients. And you, like this, this is the problem with like STEMI, the, the, the STEMI guidelines is that, you know, we're like, all right, well, this is a STEMI. And then we have STEMIs or MIs that don't have any ST elevation, like in D winter T waves. And we're like, well, there is no ST elevation, but it's still, it's still an occlusive MI. So then we have these STEMI equivalents and we see those sort of march out. And we got to remember too, that like a STEMI is literally stands for ST elevation myocardial infarction. Yeah. Plenty of other myocardial infarctions, and it doesn't really actually predict what percentage blockage you have. Or it, yeah. you know, again, it's 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 a piece. You know, it's a piece of the puzzle. So ST elevation statistically makes it more probable that you have a blockage in a vessel. Now there are again, you know, STEMI distractors and things like that. They look the same in a lot of ways on EKGs, and there's some little things that we can pull out to show that maybe that they're not and that sort of thing, but. Again, like there, I have also seen people who have had very clear ST elevation on EKGs who have had normal coronaries. Like it, it, it happens. Like again, this is, you know, I think sometimes I, when we teach students, especially when we teach basic EKGs, I remember this even in medical school. I thought to myself, like, man, like EKGs, like how are these people reading this stuff? Like that's crazy. No, like you, know, you hear and be like, wow, I see the PR interval is about this and that. And uh, I see a slight, L, like, almost like what we're doing right now with this EKG. Yeah. And then, and it's great. And you think to yourself like, man, someday I'll get good enough to read an EKG like that. And then you like actually like become an actual physician and work and it, it, nothing has changed. 
I still like that, that unless I'm sitting here picking <laughs> apart an EKG in actual clinical practice, I'm looking at a patient, I'm looking at their symptoms, I'm looking at a snapshot of their heart. And I think it's awesome that the, that they got multiple EKGs because I think what's more significant here isn't these little minutia that we're picking out. It's the dynamic, the, the fact that it's a dynamic EKG, it's changing. That's the weird part, right? Yeah. Like, but there is evidence in this first one, I think, and, you know, in my paramedic opinion, that there are some things that indicate that something is going on with the patient's condition. And I agree in that I don't think it's this is diagnostic of its own. What it what it means to me is I'm like, oh, I need to take more of these on the way to the hospital. I should consider going to a like a cath lab hospital, given that my patient is sick, symptomatic. And I'm seeing, you know, like it, it's not significant ST elevation. But there is some elevation in V3 and maybe a skosh or a smidgen of elevation in V4. And I see those big prominent T waves. And like Chris said, I don't see any ST depression, but it is also, you know, it is an anterior, you know, this ST elevation is anterior and I hate anterior MIs because... They're harder to find because they're like a lot of these distractors that we're talking about, you know, uh, tend to appear in the precordial leads. And, you know, I'm going like, oh, man, this is this has got to be a STEMI. And it's like, ah, it's benign early repull, you know, or <laughs> something along those lines. Um, but the T waves to me are kind of the, the big things that make me concerned. And uh, here's how here's my favorite part about T waves is, you know, uh, it's similar to like Justice Potter and uh, Chacabelli's versus Ohio. I hope I'm saying that right. I am not a law person uh, on regarding like what qualifies as obscene material is famous for saying the follow following like I just know it when I see it. And hyperacute T waves are sort of the same thing in medicine from from what I've read up on and what I've the people that I've talked to, which is there's really just no universally agreed upon answer as to what makes a T wave hyperacute and therefore concerning. It's one of those like, well, I just know it when I see it. Um, Dr. Jamie uh, Santa Steven from University of Wisconsin, and I probably butchered that last name too, uh, had this to say about it. And this was quoted from, uh, this was sent to me by our medical director. Uh, he says, hyperacute T waves are often bulky and wide at the base and are localized to the anatomic area of infarct. The widening of the T wave may also lengthen the QT interval. And it must be emphasized that hyperacute T waves are not necessarily always tall. They may only be relatively large when compared to the R wave. So that means even a small T wave can be hyperacute if it's paired with a low voltage QRS. Yeah, I, I think know that's the point here too. Like yeah. the T waves, the the T, like when you you stand back and look at the EKG, like I said, we see these like larger than what we would consider normal T waves in V3 and V4. Maybe we call them hyperacute because they're larger yeah. than normal, right? Maybe some elevation in those leads, right? Probably. But they're contiguous. And that's yes. more like if it was like V3 and one, well, that, that doesn't make sense. That's physiologically exactly. doesn't really make sense. That so I would be less concerned, but they're contiguous, right? So yeah. then, so even more so, like again, like if I saw this in the ER, I'd have the benefit of being like, hmm, weird. What does the patient look like? Oh, they've got symptoms. Okay, I'm going to go look at an old EKG. Were these things here before? You guys don't have that benefit in EMS. So no, the next, next thing is exactly what the paramedic did, which is awesome. We said, hey, you know what? I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep Absolutely. looking. I need more data, you know? 
absolutely. Uh, other things I look for on this, uh, you know, on the EKGs that I try and read, uh, again, just sort of looking for little indications. Again, none of these on their own, um, like you said, are like conclusive. You know, this isn't a like, though, this is definitely like a 90% STEMI. This is all just little data that I add into the, the context of patient to determine. So I look at R wave progression here to me, the R like R wave progression seems okay. It, the biggest thing for me is like when you have an R wave, bigger R wave, no R wave combined with other findings. That to me is where I'm like, ah, the R wave progression has gone bad. Um, you know, like here V2 has a nice R wave and then V3 has like sort of like a smallerish R wave, but it's not, it's not really evidence here. Q waves. I don't see any Q waves and Q waves are, you know, concerning when they're at least like a quarter of the length of the QRS complex or like one millimeter box wide. And I don't see anything. Typically um, Q waves will be a later sign. Exactly. So Q, you, you will see Q waves when there's already death and scarring of tissues. So a lot of times, especially in the acute setting, you won't see Q waves until like, you know, even sometimes days or weeks after the actual initial injury. So it's not something yeah. that you want to necessarily rely on as people. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Seitz, here's one for you. Uh, one of our listeners brought up um, Wellensign in V2. Uh, and that's sort of that like biphasic T wave. I, I didn't really see, I, I kind of see what I think she's talking about, but I don't know if that's like at all clinically significant here. Um, or significant enough to cause concern on this EKG? No, I mean, definitely not in V2. I'm looking at the first one still. I'm kind of yeah. going through the ones that we have. Maybe the, I, w I would say no. Maybe the third one, I guess. So, Wellens is going to be this, like, pretty pronounced biphasic, like, like up significantly and then down significantly is almost like a, like a waveform. Like, I don't, this one goes up, but then doesn't really go down. I mean, it kind of levels yeah. off. Um, so if you like, if you Google well and sign, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Like it's, it's, when we say biphasic, like it's, it's pretty pronounced biphasic, like up and down and kind of like equal distribution. Um, and they, it's, it should be symmetric and pretty deeply inverted, like actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. so again, so I don't really think this, I wouldn't call this wellness. I don't think this is like very symmetric in terms of like, I'm not seeing that really a biphasic pattern personally. Okay. Gotcha. And I think we already talked about mimics that we'd kind of be kind of concerned for here. And I, I don't see any of those mimics present. Um, you know, like I, I don't see anything that really indicates like benign early repole because there aren't really tall, large, prominent R waves in like V1, V2, and V3. Um, there's no real fish hook J point. I don't, you know, like I'm not concerned about pericarditis, especially given the history, because there isn't like that pleuritic chest pain and the patient, um, we don't know if they have a fever, but you know, they haven't had an illness or anything like that. And so I, I'm not really concerned about any of those things that could be like obscuring my, and the left ventricular hypertrophy isn't also an issue on this patient. Um, all right. Well then let's go from that first one and just go right to the last and compare it to the first, because that is the biggest thing that, you know, really sort of indicated that something was going on is that there were significant changes. And Spence, um, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm not sure if I've yeah. heard this point get brought up. Uh, a lot of the mimics out there are consistent and, and they won't change in versus that. So that's kind of why I another reason why a changing EKG is concerning is because a lot of things that will mimic a STEMI are not dynamic. 
They're not going to yeah, be dynamic. dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. They're not dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, you know, like you, you should not see benign early repolarization change in the course of like a 30 minute transport. Like, Hey, their bundle, their bundle branch block just fixed itself from, you know, now to 15 <laughs> minutes ago. That's good news. Hey, Bob, turn the ambulance around. We're done here. Like, don't yeah. worry. That J point switched back. We're okay. Like, it's not yeah. really like, uh, it's, yeah. it's just, yeah. It's fine. Hey, my left ventricular hypertrophy is gone. Ah, no. Cleared it up. I walked yeah. down the steps. Must have done the trick. Dr. Seitz is right. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, rate rhythm and axis basically have changed for this last one. Uh, although we are up to 74 beats per minute from 71. So, uh, now they're dead. There is that. Uh, adenosine. <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, no adenosine. That was nope. a joke. Put it down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, and now we see, I, I don't want to, I, the, the ST elevation has sort of changed in like V2. It's definitely more pronounced. Um, I think V3, maybe it's more, but V it, it, V4 still sort of is, you know, maybe a skosh. V4 almost looks better to me in this one. Like, yeah, like, the, actually, V2, yeah, I'm kind of looking at them too. And the thing about V2, it's not even so much the elevation because it's like the, it's the, even that first, we only have three beats there, right? The second B is where I see some elevation. It's yeah. that, it's the morphology. It's that, and even in V1, the morphology now is becoming more of that, like, tombstone that we talk about you, you know what i mean like it's just exactly it's not peaking it's not like the, the peak the t wave is not coming to like a normal peak it's kind of more flattening at the top the morphology is changing that's a little more concerning and then avr i think that t wave inversion is getting deeper just yep. you know again kind of a little bit of a red flag and, until- and and i'm also seeing sort of like an obliqueness and like a change in the t waves in leads one and avl um and I also see some, uh, which, you know, I, it's sort of, I mean, that's, that's concerning. It's sort of like a flock of birds just flew into like the high lateral wall of their left ventricle. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like to me, those are, those are definitely like concerning findings that, you know, indicate that something is going on here. Um, you know, the something being, you know, a probable MI. Um, I, I don't see much in change of like the R waves, you know, like it, maybe the R wave got smaller in V3, but again, like R wave progression isn't really the thing I'm looking at. It's really <clears throat> those T waves. And now we have some depression as well. We have some depression in lead three. Um, it, it looks like it's kind of artifacty in, in lead two, th- three. Um, yeah, it is pretty gnarly. But it's still, I think even through the artifact, I can still appreciate some ST depression there. And so, like, this is one that if I saw this in the field and I had a, you know, symptomatic chest pain patient who was also sweaty, uh, where even if it didn't say STEMI, I would make a STEMI activation and, you know, go to a a cath lab hospital Mm -hmm. with this one. Um, but the fact that we have two and the fact that they are more than two, but the fact that we have multiple and again, that they're dynamic is really the cincher for this call. And that, this is something where like Dr. Seitz, if I, if I took you this patient and I was like, and I gave you that, you know, the, the second 12 lead and I was like, here you go. And then I gave you like all the other ones to go with it. That would I, I feel like that would change the absolutely no yeah. and, I, and I think even if you didn't have it I'd repeat it myself too I think again the the key here is not so much 
what I what I would encourage your listeners to look at if they're looking at the EKGs is not focus so much on the elevation. I mean, it's there, right? The elevations, the inversions, yeah. but yeah. but but to recognize the dynamic changes, right? Though that really is the, the 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 kind of clincher here. Like Chris had said, like other things shouldn't really change that acutely. And when we see changes on EKG, that becomes concerning. And I would have done exactly what that he heard, Dr. said. was like, yeah, maybe. Let's call the cardiologist, right? You know what I mean? And again, it becomes, you know, and I've had it happen before where EMS says one thing and I look at it and I'm not really convinced either or, or confused as well. And I call the cardiologist and you know what? He's kind of confused too. And we talk to the patient and after a little bit of while, I was like, yeah, I guess I'll take him to cath lab. I'll give it a shot. And oh, lo and behold, they had a huge, I mean, this is not as clear cut as I think sometimes we would like it to be. Um, but those dynamic changes are, I think, like the real, the real clue in here is that like some something's off. And what's cool too, I will, com- I will. What I really want to commend this medic on is the fact that he didn't. Like again, you are the first responder. You are the, you know, like the fact that he didn't let the hospital say, no, 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 you can't come here. You need to go somewhere else. Like because like yeah. they don't know, right? They're not seeing the patient, and the fact that he had not only the competence in his own skills, but also like the foresight to see that, Hey, you know what? This patient needs to go somewhere where this potentially could like, that's huge because I could see a lot of, you know, EMS providers saying, Oh, well, you know, they're giving me a hard time. I could be wrong. I don't know. Like the, and you know, you could be wrong. You could be wrong. But again, yeah. like yeah. the fact that he was like, no, this is what I'm concerned about. This is what we need to do. That's huge because, yeah. and I would encourage you get like anyone out there who again, and again, he too, I think like if, if he was a little more concerned, call your medical direction. Be like, hey, I'm worried about this EKG. Take a look. That and then you know, you could even do that. Put it back on them. Call your medical direction and yeah. say, hey, I want to take this patient's here. They're they're on diversion though. What should I do? Yeah. And nine times out of ten, they're gonna say, just take them there, right? And now it's their call, not even yours. So don't yeah. hesitate to use those resources at your disposal. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a lot of places transmit, and I you know, I I initially, I've said this before on the show, like I was mad about transmission because I'm like, no, I want, like, I want people to be able to read 12 leads. And, you know, again, recognizing that a lot of this is just, you know, probability, you know, like the more data that you have that has more concerning features and it's all those little things that sort of add up to paint the picture. You know, it's never, it's never just ST elevation. It's ST elevation, ST depression, T waves, it's the R wave progression in those anterior leads when you're worried. It's, you know, like the development of Q waves and it's those changes over time coupled with that, you know, sick patient who's, you know, complaining of concerning symptoms. Like those are all the things. And the more data that you have, those more data points, the more, you know, sure you might be. And even, the, even when you're like, man, I, I've seen 12 leads where I'm like, that is a STEMI. And like you said, they're clear coronary in in EMS, like we don't have much of an option. Like if I, if I went like, nah, I don't think that's a STEMI, even though they have all of these features and they're complaining of chest pain and they're sick, you know, like I, it doesn't really matter what the outcome is, even if they end up having clear coronaries, even in those situations where we're not, you're not wrong to overact, like to activate when you're concerned, when you have enough of those data points to do that. I think that's the safest thing to do is for us is to take it to you guys, let you guys run your, you know, troponins and sensitive troponins and do more tests and repeat EKGs and consult with the cardiology and, you know, to, to, and to figure it out. I mean, yeah. And I would argue, like, I think sometimes it's better to cancel an activation than have missed the opportunity or the time frame where you should have done one. Right. Absolutely. Like that. 
you know, so I think that, you yeah. know, that that's more important. It's, it's very easy to cancel a cath lab activation. We just yeah. cancel it. Right. And everybody's happy that they don't have to come in. But like, again, missing that or delaying care because, you know, yeah, always here on the side of, you know, if you have concern, then be concerned. That's your yeah. job. Yeah. I think that's the thing here is that we had chest pain. We had a concerning 12 lead and, you know, with with the multiple points that we kind of looked at and brought up and we had changes with the serial EKGs, which was the clincher and that equaled, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, I guess, well, that's the wrong Tom Hanks reference. Hey, you're close. But, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> He probably shouldn't pilot things, is what I'm. Right. What I'm <laughs> That's any kind of crap. Whether it's a boat, he just not. <laughs> oh fuck yeah! I forgot the yeah, boat. I'm the captain now. Uh, oh Jesus! Uh, if you're if you're on any kind of craft with Tom Hanks, you're fucked. Might end up on an island so, with nothing but a volleyball yeah. for a friend. Yeah. So let's go on. Let's move on to other uh, things for this call. Uh, so let's kind of. I just kind of want to touch on treatment really quick. Um, Let's kind of talk about fentanyl uh, for MI. So I think everyone kind of knows like, hey, like nitroglycerin, that's a pretty, you know, common thing that we treat for uh, MIs uh, for chest pain. Fentanyl is uh, kind of the next step that a lot of people, a lot of agencies are giving now for chest pain. And there's a lot of, I'm I'm very pro fentanyl. Uh, there's a lot of, not for me personally, but like for the patients. Yeah, as a hobby. Um, as a hobby. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm really pro like, like back alley fentanyl, you know, like scraping it off the yeah, the patches and smoking it. Um, don't do that. Uh, but yeah, the fentanyl, uh, it does a lot of cool things. So the first thing it does is it reduces catecholamine. So like norepinephrine, for example, that's a catecholamine. Um, and catecholamines typically do things like, you know, raise your blood pressure, make your heart beat faster, those kind of things. And reducing catecholamine levels is going to reduce the workload on the heart to some extent. And also reducing the perception of pain in and of itself uh, can help uh, reduce people's heart rates. And we've talked about this earlier. We joked about, you know, working a sick heart. You actually don't want to do that. You actually want to give it a break uh, if it's sick so you can reduce uh, its uh, its demand uh, for fuel and that it's not getting because it has a clot somewhere in a uh, fuel giving pipe that we call a coronary artery. Um, I guess another question I guess I would have for this guy would be, I, I, they only gave one nitro tab, right? Yeah. Yeah. They only gave one nitro and tab. And the blood pressure stayed pretty stable. I didn't see in, any indicators for an inferior MI. Oh, why, why did we rest at one nitro? I mean, the pain was still present, correct? The conversation I had with the medic, basically, they were they were concerned. They didn't know that while they made the systemic activation, they were also concerned about you know other pathology, and they were kind of at a like I am not sure what's going on. Maybe this isn't an MI. Maybe it is. Um, okay. And they, I, I think, you know, like they took the blood pressures in both arms. I think they were worried about like maybe an aortic dissection. And so they were just, I, I, which had it been an aortic dissection, I think, you know, then lowering the blood pressure and the heart rate and, and all of that probably would have been a probably been better fine. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, but they were just kind of concerned with how the patient's pain changed with the nitroglycerin. And so they withheld further nitroglycerin doses. How did that? Re refresh regard. me really quick. How did the pain change with nitroglycerin? 
uh, it went from a sharp pain to a dull pain. Huh. Still seven out of ten. You know, it kind of cracks me up a little bit about this. I, I am I'm not trying to rag on the medic. I, mean, I, I do think the medic did a really good job, especially kind of standing up to the the snarkiness uh, over the radio. Um, yeah. But I do find it's kind of like, I am definitely going to just, you know, bull in a china shop my way into this hospital and give this patient to this cath lab so that somebody else can definitely go down this cardiac path. Hey, do you want to give more nitro? No, I'm not sure if it's cardiac. <laughs> like that's, that's the part yeah. that kind of cracks me up a little bit. Um, but no, I, I, I yeah, I, I, th- I think this patient, I mean, I think this patient would have been fine for more nitro. I, I don't know personally that I see a scenario where I, I wouldn't want to give um, another nitro. Uh, and of course, I, I do think like fentanyl as well uh, would have been fine uh, for this patient. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like if you're going to withhold nitroglycerin out of concern, I, I think fentanyl would have been a, a perfectly reasonable medication to give. Yeah. You know, as a like, all right, well, I still want to treat your pain. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think we already discussed the stair chair versus ambulating the patient piece, which was another part that I kind of wanted to talk about, but we'd already hit that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, got it out of the way early. Good. It's nice. And then, yeah, we already talked uh, again about total ambulance divert and logistics. Was there anything else on this call that anybody felt was uh, was worthy of talking about or bringing up? Uh, yeah, so I guess just kind of one more point about uh, TAD or total ambulance divert. Um, Spencer had talked about it earlier, and uh, Dr. Seitz and I talked about it. It's uh, one of those things is you just got to remember, I mean, I think like in all things, like period, uh, but let alone EMS, there are no no necessarily hard and fast rules. Um, I think one of the things that the medic did here that was pretty good and that I've seen people do out in the field is if you have a need and you think this hospital can meet it, even if they're on divert, call and communicate if, the, if that channel is open to you. Um, I mean, I've definitely had, I've had like, like the opposite of total ambulance divert occur before where uh, we went to a farther away hospital because the hospital was technically not on divert. They didn't meet their own internal criteria for putting themselves on divert. Um, but the, they came on the radio and the charger said, Hey, she recognized my voice. She's like, Hey, can you call me? And so I called her and she's like, Hey, we can take that patient, but we have another STEMI patient that's in the cath lab now. So they will be waiting for that cath lab to open up. And so I'm like, Hey, are they going to be waiting more than 10 minutes? And she's like, yeah, they'll be waiting more than 10 minutes. Well, the next cath lab, and, and thankfully where Spencer and I work, there's like, it's hard to not find a cath lab. Like you, like there's just, there's a lot <laughs> Everyone's of Everyone's got one. Yeah. Except whatever. Well, most everyone has one. Yeah. Can't avoid yeah. Them. Yeah, there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like hard. And so I'm like, okay, we're going to go 10 minutes farther because yeah, it's 10 minutes more of a drive, but it, it doesn't do the patient any good to go to a hospital and then sit, you know, like, yeah, I got into the hospital. I mean, it's going to be another 20 minutes before they can actually get cathed. Uh, but you know, I got him out of my ambulance. There, there's no success there. Um, so yeah, so total ambulance divert. Uh, if you know, just communicate. If you really feel you need to get to a hospital, communicate why. Uh, you know, and and get there and and do your thing. That's kind of really all I all I have is just to kind of reiterate this stuff on Tad. I want to just add really quick, like not even add, just reiterate again as well. Is that there was a couple key things that this medic did really really well, and one was to recognize the need for further info, right? By getting more EKGs, Yep. recognize where, what, what was going to kill this patient first is going to be an MI, right? And make sure that this patient got to a cath lab. And mm-hmm. even when that patient, even when that, you know, hospital is saying that they're on diversion, like, you know, 
not fighting through that, but again, communicating well enough to express the urgency of this patient going in. Um, yeah. And then also, like I said, like, you know, looking at that EKG and deciding that, Hey, you know what? Like, uh, I don't know. Again, I need more information like that. That's huge. Like these are like, that that's why this was a good outcome, right? Like, cause there's yeah. like a couple pieces yeah. here where we could be having a very different conversation. Like, Oh, they went to a farther hospital or, Oh, they didn't get serial EKGs or I mean, like, but they did, they did do those things. And like, I think that's, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. I mean, this medic clearly like not only like knew his tradecraft well, uh, but also knew how, you know, it, it's one thing to know that what you know, and you should, right? Like, know when you know something, know that you know it, and know that you know it well. And when you don't know something, recognize that you don't know it. And I think sometimes we can fall into two two traps there, where one, we're a little too arrogant and we think we know more than we do, or we're not confident in what we do know. And like, you have to be confident in what you do know as well. And I think, like, obviously, like I said, he he played a both of those roles well here. And I think, obviously, like that's where that's where you you save a life, right? This patient's life was saved because of those things. That that's huge. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Absolutely. That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's uh, I think it's time for Spencer's awkward as fuck ending. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know if he has oh, one. No. Oh, he... no, you know what, Chris? You promised the listeners a trach story. Yeah. All right. So here's my trach story. So Spencer and I talked about like every paramedic, and I would say every healthcare provider. We have that one. There's a lot of stuff we can tolerate just fine. That like your average bear would be like, oh god. Like you know, some people it's like like we see a lot of blood and guts and that kind of stuff, and we're just like, oh, we're cool with that. You know, I'm not saying it's not traumatic sometimes, but I'm saying like, you know, we handle it okay. Uh, but everyone has that thing that they can't handle. Like some people, it's like a, it's like not just poop, but like a specific consistency that'll make them vomit. For me, it's, um, excessively, uh, particularly if it's like brown, but like a trach, uh, goop stuff that just comes out of patients. trait. Yeah. Trach goop. And this is what we're calling it. And so the last, last episode, I promised I'd tell the story of this, this one. And it, like, if I visualize it too much, I'll, I'll have to take breaks. But <laughs> here we go. But this is my thing. Like, I just, this is I, Chris's I have. Snake. Yeah, yeah right, the, exactly. The, the, this, well, speaking of snakes. So we have a, we're doing an IFT and, um, it's a guy that, uh, you know, he's just, he's miserable. Um, and, and he's got a lot, like, he just, he needs a lot of help to try and feel comfortable. And it's kind of one of those things where you're trying to make him feel comfortable and you can't and you're constantly trying to work on it. And so he starts like pointing to his trach and, and he really wants, I know he wants the suction and I'm like, okay, nope, it's fine. Like I am a trained professional. This is the thing that I do. And I help people by doing this. I'm not going to vomit. And so I start kind of doing that and um, get a good suction going. And I kind of say, Hey, like try and cough. And that was an idiot thing to do because he does that. And out comes this, I don't even really know exactly how to describe the exact consistency, but it would be similar in structure. I would say in like the, the ruggedness of the structure would be similar. If you've ever pulled like a clump of hair out of a drain, like a long one, except it wasn't hairy, but it was kind of that. And it just, it like popped up. And it kind of was like, it was kind of like, and, and, and the color, was like, the coloration was on the two spectrums of mucus, right? You either have like neon green or you have brown. And he had like, like this was like someone went to the ice cream machine that does the twist where it does the vanilla and the chocolate at once, except it was, yeah. And it just comes out and it's just a solid thing. And it lands right on the guy's chest and uh, it's just right down the sternum and it has like a little turn at the end. 
Oh man, that's a lot. And it's 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 hard. And so I'm like, and uh, and so he's kind of pointing to it like he needs me to take care of it. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna do this. And it was hard. And so I go to suction with the Yankower, and uh, and of course, like it's in like his chest hair, so it's not coming up. And so it's just oh this like, thing. <laughs> it's just this thing that I have to keep dealing with. And so I just kind of end up uh, taking four by fours and just kind of like making a little four by four trail covering all of them and then i try and take my gloves and pull them all off at once and it doesn't work and so now i'm just kind of like pulling the guy's chest hair with all this mucus in it like off oh. into these four by fours oh, and i'm having to take breaks and turn around and try to contain myself and i feel terrible because the person who probably feels way worse than in than in any of this uh, than me is him because he doesn't <laughs> want to be this guy he doesn't want any of this and here i am acting like i'm the one with the bad gig you know like i'm like oh my gosh i have to clean up your like like he's the one that is worse off and i can't maintain my shit so anyway that is my trach story uh in the back of the ambulance and um yeah there you go <laughs> i have now told it and on that gaggy note oh, goodbye okay. <laughs> all right see you guys uh doctor actually we're really good. we had a few things to wrap up really quick uh dr sites thank you again for joining us uh on yet another episode you always add so much we appreciate having you here absolutely uh, no i appreciate you guys having me it was a lot of fun oh yeah anytime um again uh if you need to prepare for the nremt prep written uh or practical head over to sitesandsirens.com sign up right away you can use the promo code ems2020 uh no slash in that i believe and mm -hmm, uh, that will get you 20 percent off of an absolutely amazing program so please do that go sign up whether you need the test prep or you just need to review sites and sirens also the back to basics podcast that uh, dr sites and uh, whatever his brother's name is uh yeah and his brother they have a uh, they have a podcast uh it's an amazing podcast they uh, dig into uh, various medical topics i think the last one you guys did was uh, snake envenomation or yes yeah that's uh, that's right that's nope. right yeah no probes. Um, and I remember that. <laughs> I remember that uh, because you said it at the beginning of the show. Uh, but it's, a, it's a, but yeah, please, uh, please go over there. Uh, check out his podcast. Check out his program. Uh, it is all absolutely 100% worth your time. I have personally used his program uh, and I passed the NREMT uh, with it. So uh, once again, thank you, Dr. Seitz. And, thank you for, everybody, and for everybody listening. Uh, yeah. See you next week.